This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Escape from Panic, Ending an Odyssey of Fear. And the author is Dr. Needham L. Long, and Dr. Long joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Dr. Long. Hello, Steve. How are you? Well, welcome to the show. I want to read a couple of things that you've written to introduce your book to everyone. You say this, the book is about recurrent panic attacks, panic disorder, a.k.a. acute anxiety disorder and my own real-life experiences in arriving at a successful outcome. I have shown by example how other panic attack victims might gain relief through self-study by an analogy with my insights into my own negative defining moments and the value of writing to achieve externalization of thought in this endeavor. So uh, a lot to talk about, and the great thing about this is that it has been a success. This is a proven. You proved that what you're talking about really works to overcome this anxiety. That's correct. I'm a living proof. Well, let's go into a little bit about your past, Dr. Long, and how this all came about and uh, really took you by surprise, didn't it? Yes, it did. I uh, had some uh, fearful events in, in early childhood, that uh, uh, the intensity of which I promptly lost. It's a coping mechanism of, of very early childhood that when they're sufficiently frightened by an episode, they can't look at it, can't acknowledge it, and, and are petrified. They, you know, don't... Uh, I don't have a response to the anger that's generated. And uh, the, the feeling gets separated from the memory. And uh, at a later date, a different venue, the person might be able to remember these episodes from their early years. And I'm speaking about myself. I know I'm speaking in second and third person here, but uh, remember, this is all just my experience. Uh, in later years, I... I could remember those events, but I didn't make the connection of what those events were in terms of the intense anxiety and panic that I felt on certain encounters in my adult life. And how old were you when this happened? Uh, from about age two and a half to age oh, six. Okay, and they uh, then you kind of kind of put them somewhere, and then how old were you when they come at, came at you with a vengeance? Uh, when I got married and we uh, had a baby and I started to go and enter my medical practice. So you... I just finished my specialty training and the anxiety became more intense and then uh, had some incapacitating occurrences that I had to stop what my intended agenda, agenda was for the moment. You couldn't even and work. Leave the scene. You couldn't even work. No. And you were complete, couldn't complete certain tasks. Uh huh. I could go in a room by myself and and do most of the work, but uh, there were certain encounters I couldn't tolerate. And you were about what? Thirty two. I was about thirty. Yeah, about thirty one or two. Thirty one or two, and incredible amount of years in between the actual. Uh, a traumatic event as a child, and then when it manifests itself. Yes. Now, is that regular? Is that normal in most people? That that's kind of what happens. I really wouldn't know. I'm not a professional in psychology, and that would be beyond my uh -huh. uh, extent of my knowledge. I was a pathologist, which is the farther end of the spectrum of, of right. human activity—things right. you can touch, feel, see, and analyze. So talk, psychology is, you know, intangible. But tell tell us about this panic disorder. How would you uh, how would you define it? Well, it's the uh, panic attack is a t 
time interval of incapacitating, disabling, overwhelming uh, fright. Uh, when it's caused by a real threat, somebody holding a gun to your head or about ready to throw you under a bus, you know, it's understandable. But when there isn't any apparent reason for it, it's what is referred to as, as a panic attack. And since these are based on unconscious memories or memories in your brain from which the feeling has been buried, successfully hidden from you, uh, it's, you, don't, you don't associate the, the, the current event, the current sensation with the perp, <laughs> the right. negative defining moment, so-called, that was of historical uh, location. And since that's the case, then it's no surprise that when panic attacks are recurrent, that it's an ingrained disorder. And so that's where it gets the name panic disorder or acute anxiety disorder. Mm -hmm. uh, real uh, fright, I use fright instead of fear because there's a little bit of a technical difference. The feeling is the same in both, but... Uh, the cause of fright is obvious and real. The cause of, of, I mean, the cause of fear is obvious or real. The cause of anxiety is irrational fear or fear due to a hidden cause. And may and at that moment, the person like yourself that went through that didn't even understand what was going on. No, absolutely, I was baffled. I mean, you. Why am I feeling that? You know, like you say, it incapacitated you. It just completely exactly stopped right. you. You might be interested in uh, playing the part of Detective Poirot in Agatha Christie's murder mysteries, like Murder on the Orient Express and uh, uh, Death on the Nile and stories like that. <laughs> be the detective and uh, figure out what it is. I can yeah. tell you five triggering events that used to trigger my problem. Huh. Would you be interested sure, in yeah, hearing share, that? Share that with us. <clears throat> well, the first one was a close encounter, regardless of how innocent, with an attractive woman. My wife accepted. Hmm. She didn't frighten me. Hmm. But any other one uh, did. Now, if that ain't a downer, why? Yeah, uh, and, and, the, and the word again, you're saying frightened you. Fright, again, the fright. Yeah, right. It, it frightened me. And then the uh, second was uh, I couldn't sit in a formal crowded gathering like I did coroner's autopsies occasionally, had to testify in court. I got where I couldn't stand to be in the room, and then I couldn't stand to be in a go to church. Hmm. That was even worse. And <clears throat> then I couldn't uh, I couldn't get in the barber chair and have my hair cut hmm. and uh, I could go in a barber shop and sit and watch somebody else but when it was my turn to get in the chair no way I wasn't going to do it and then fourth I got so I couldn't go to the grocery store and buy groceries until I figured out that a lot of the times when I'd go to the grocery store and come to the checkout, there was always some cute chick there attending the cash <laughs> register. <laughs> that was the problem. <laughs> and that was the problem. Well, I figured my way around it because in most grocery stores, there's more than one cash register. Right. And you can find some other hmm. a clerk with different qualities. Yes. So, and then finally, I got so I could not drive in slow, bumper-to-bumper, stop-and-go traffic. Hmm. Now. Wow. Inspector Poirot will have to, <laughs> yes, without further information, exactly. Inspector Poirot can look through it. All right. Well, it's obvious that the way you're talking about this, that it's curable. It is. It is curable. I mean, you have overcome it, and, and that's what, you, and that's what your book is about, is helping people to learn how to overcome yeah. it. And I don't take medication for it. In fact, medication didn't exist back in 1960. Uh, two, uh, and so I didn't have any option but right. to either go down the tube or get better. Well, are drugs helpful? Uh, 
I don't have any experience with them. I've talked to a few people who I know have panic disorders, mm-hmm. and some say, yeah, it's helpful, and others uh, say no. Now, that may not be the fault of the drug. It may be the fault of whoever's administering it or the dosage right. or the selection of the right one. Right. Or it may be the degree of the panic, the type of panic disorder. Something that's worth mentioning uh, is that some panic disorders are just focal. Others are generalized. Mm-hmm. I was generalized. Mm-hmm. Encounters bothered me. The focal ones are like someone, an adult, who can't sleep in a room without a, a light on, mm-hmm. or they can't get on an elevator, or maybe they can get on an elevator, but not if it's crowded, and they can't drive over a high bridge, and they're petrified when they walk around a lake or a swimming pool and get too close to it. Mm. They are, they're things they can work around and live around. Uh, they're a nuisance, but they're not an, a disability. The other, which is what I had, was there a variety of circumstances mm, right. that that triggered mine. Now, what's the role of self-help in your cure or anyone's cure? How do you see that self-help? Well, that was that's what I label uh, what I have done. And even before I found a therapist, after 21 months of struggling along with having disabling panic attacks, I discovered one of my three prime mover perps. <laughs> uh, I call them a perp. They're the negative defining moments. Uh, and it was the first day of school. Something happened on the first day of school. And I discovered that. And I got relief from some of my triggers. For instance, I didn't have any trouble going to the grocery store anymore, and I didn't have trouble driving in bumper to bumper traffic. Hmm. But the others, I still had trouble. So, so you you were able to uh, go back and think about what happened? Yeah, I had read. You know, I was desperate for self-help during right. these 21 months, and I did all the usual things of taking a vacation and reading Norman Vincent Peale's Power of Positive Thinking mm-hmm. and uh, uh, reading the Bible, and all of those were like pouring water on a duck's back, really. And... Then it came to meditation. I thought, well, I, what am I going to think about? So I started going to the library, medical library, and looking through books. And I found one book would say, uh, uh, it's about, it's buried anger. And I thought, well, that's strange. I don't feel any anger. Well, of course, that's just the problem. But it's a very superficial mm. insight into the problem. Right. And then another medical book said, in reviewing large numbers of panic attack victims, a recurring cause is associated with some traumatic event on the first day of school. Hmm. So I thought about that for a while, and I thought, hey, there's something did happen. So I wrote it on a piece of paper, and heck, I even started trying to paint a picture of the defining moment in that first day of school where it happened. And I got relief from, as I say, uh, driving in traffic and going to the grocery store, but I couldn't get around the others. And about that time, after 21 months of this living in hell, really, uh, in my estimate, uh, I ran across a therapist who uh, very promptly, in less than a week of two 45-minute sessions a day, cracked it wide open and all, and I got rid of panic attacks. Wow. Now, I didn't get rid of the associated anxieties that are there, which a lot of people, a lot of us feel. Mm-hmm. The anxieties that are not disabling. Uh, but writing the book and reflecting on all of the unpleasant events or just any event that doesn't have much feeling in those first six or seven years of life, uh, over a period of time, writing them and assembling them in order, in a chronological order, uh, I figured out uh, I figured out a lot of things by just exercising my imagination and saying, "Now, why do I remember that episode? Right. How on earth could that have anything to do with the discomfort, the the unhappiness, the feeling, the vague foreboding, which went on for a few decades, really?" 
but it didn't keep me from working. You know, I, I was in practice and did well, and I, we had my wife and I, 52 years, we had raised three children. But when I started approaching retirement, I had more time. And that's when I really got into it. And I just, as I was coming toward retirement in 97, I went part-time. So in 93, I started writing this book. By 2000, I had written the essential substance of it with one exception of one of the defining moments. And uh, that defining moment by itself would not have caused a problem, but it certainly predisposed me to the others. Well, but, very, very fascinating, Doctor. Uh, you, you call it self-help by externalization of those thoughts that don't want to be remembered by writing exactly. them and then reflecting on what was just written. That's exactly. a, that is a key, isn't it? That is. It was for me. Well, it sounds like uh, this book would be very helpful for anyone that struggles with these kinds of panic attacks, uh, anxiety, uh, any kind of panic episode. So we appreciate you being with us, uh, Dr. Long. Uh, the title of the book, Escape from Panic, Ending an Odyssey of Fear. The doctor is Dr. Needham L. Long. Dr. Long, tell us how to get your book. Uh, you can order it from your local bookstore in case they don't stock it, which at this early date, it probably doesn't. It was just released January 12th. Um, and you can order it online. You can go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble. They both stock it. And maybe some others of which I just don't have the names on the tip of my tongue. Well, you're right. You can order the book from any bookstore. You just need to give the name uh, Escape from Panic and Dr. Needham. L. Long. Thank you, Dr. Long, for being with us on Author Talk. It's on ebook form also. And thank you for having me. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Hey, moms, juggle your hats with our mom of many hats, Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Moms are always juggling their hats. And sometimes it's easy for moms to forget their value when life calls for switching from role to role. But the ability to juggle so many hats is priceless. She is never just a mom. She's a decision maker, coordinator, creative genius, counselor, a friend, an authority, and a leader in her household. On Mom of Many Hats Radio, we'll be talking about the hats that you as a mom juggle. We'll acknowledge your importance and support in helping you and all moms to not just defend your value, but to believe in your value. For more on the show and Angie, check out her website, azmamamanyhats.com. She is a strong woman. She is powerful. She is wonderful. And she is valuable. Mom of Many Hats with Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Girlfriended is on Togginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts, Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The girlfriended principle was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out girlfriended.com. And then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to have somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk. Brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, From Local to Global, Smart Management Lessons to Grow Your Company. And the author is Evan J. Siegel. And Evan joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Evan. Good morning, Steve. Great to have you with us. This is going to be a quite a guide uh, uh, for those who are looking to grow their business, uh, especially uh, with your global marketing experience, and we'll get more into that. But let me read just uh, 
few things you've written so everyone can understand the focus of your book, From Local to Global, Smart Management Lessons to Grow Your Business. This is a book that provides business owners, executives, and managers with knowledge and wisdom that will help grow their business in today's challenging environment. You also say this is not a self-serving biography extolling the virtues of the author. Rather, it is hands-on, practical tool that provides real take-home value for business owners and executives. Well, that's so important because the business climate today is getting tougher and tougher, especially the international business climate. So tell us about yourself, Evan. Give us some of your background and why you wrote this book. Absolutely. Thanks, Steve. Well, I was um, fortunate enough to um, lead a small manufacturing business called Dormont Manufacturing Company. When I joined the business in 1987, we were rather small, about $5 million in sales, about 30 employees. And over a 20-year period, we achieved a tenfold increase in employment, in sales, and in profitability. And along the way, we really transformed the company from a local manufacturing company selling kind of in a regional area to a, a global manufacturing power selling our products all around the globe. Um, and I think that the uh, obviously in, over that time frame, there were many, many invaluable experiences that I, and lessons learned along the way. And what I really um, set out to do in the process of writing this book was how could I uh, try to communicate some of that knowledge along the way? What I was really very, very conscious of is that I um, had been a member for 15 years of an organization called the Young Presidents Organization. Um, the goal of that organization is really to um, help business leaders um, improve their business through education and idea exchange. And at many of the different uh, seminars I attended, one of the big pieces was take-home value. What was the knowledge that I could literally take home from this particular lecture and start to apply to my business? And so that really formed a model for what I was trying to accomplish in this book. In addition, I had over the years done a number of uh, lectures, both at trade shows as well as at um, a number of universities, including the University of Pittsburgh and my own uh, alma mater, Carnegie Mellon University, the Tepper School of Business, where I was teaching um, and doing lectures for both executive education and for graduate students and on a series of different topics. And so the goal here was to try to create, as I've done in the book, really ten kind of distinct chapters, each that stands on its own and really provides at the end a kind of a summary, uh, lessons learned, as it were, that uh, business owners and uh, executives can start to apply to their business. Now, you've also served on the White House Innovation and Information Policy Task Force and the Federal CFO Council. That's correct. So I was uh, very fortunate enough, after we had sold the business, um, I was involved in a number of activities, um, including philanthropy, and uh, again, I had mentioned previously working in academia as an executive in residence. And I was uh, asked by the president if I could, would be willing to serve um, as the chief financial officer at the United States Department of Agriculture. And while at first that seems like a leap going from running a manufacturing business into the agriculture department, I think what the president and the secretary were looking for was someone who was a smart, intelligent business leader who knew how to build high-performing teams and really get people to work together to try to transform government. Um, and I was fortunate enough um, in that role to be able to participate in a couple cross-government uh, groups, including, as you'd mentioned, the um, Federal Chief Financial Officers uh, Council, as well as the White House Task Force on Innovation. And, again, you start to get a glimpse of um, some of the very interesting that are, things that are going on within the government in terms of um, innovation and idea exchange. But I think a lot of that really becomes how do we start to take those ideas, and it's really you know kind of one of the components as I think about how to start helping companies and how to transform the economy here in the U.S. Um, obviously, I think it starts at home. It starts with the company itself, 
Um, and I think I try to outline in the book a couple key components. Um, one dealing with um, product development, um, really new product developments being kind of a source of business growth as, as a key component and a foundational piece. The second P, as it were, is really process. It's business process improvement. And I found that um, the more we invested in quality, the lower our costs were and the more effective that we became. And so I was really a large, uh, huge advocate of using some of the tools like lean manufacturing that was developed by a friend of mine, Jim Womack, who was a key proponent of it with his Lean Enterprise Institute, as well as Six Sigma and other business process tools. Um, and again, using good strategic planning tools were very important. So uh, process was very important. I think a third leg was really people. It was really how do you learn to tap into the, just the incredible knowledge, dedication, and passion that people have, and can you kind of bring those things together into a high-performing team? And we were fortunate enough to have some wonderful people at our company that really um, made Dormont a huge success. And, and I think the last force part, which really gets back to what you mentioned in the beginning of your question, which is kind of the government activity, is really around policy. It's trying to work hand-in-hand -hand with the government so that we can start to look at and modify some of the whether it's tax policies or economic incentives, so that they're better aligned with what we need to do to help businesses compete globally. So those four P's, I think, are really critical. You know, those things being product, process, people, and policy really become kind of foundational elements to start helping turn around and rebuild the American economy. What would you say were your most difficult challenges? Uh, very interesting. I think that some of the key challenges we encountered, um, one in the book I talk about some of the things around international standards, that our products have, we've been selling all around the world, and then we encountered some new standards that were developed in the European Union that were effectively blocked our market access. And so over a 10 or 15 year period, I worked very, very closely with um, the United States Trade Representative, the Department of Commerce, and as well as our distributors um, and representatives overseas to really try to overcome some of these um, uh, design restrictive standards and block market access. Um, some of this was outlined in some articles that were published by the Wall Street Journal. But uh, over time, we you know, took dedication and perseverance, but we were over, uh, able to overcome some, but not all of these. But I think it really reflected that the uh, United States trade policy needs to make sure that there's fair access both for our you know, U.S. companies that are competing overseas and equal access that when those companies then now compete in our market that we have reciprocal uh, access in those markets. So that certainly, you know, the whole area of international access was certainly one of the key challenges that we faced. You often hear the term build locally and then you can market globally. So you really have to, before you can enter that international world, you really got to have a solid, uh, well, a plan. Uh, you know, you've talked about some of the elements of that, but it really has to work here in this country locally before you can look elsewhere. I think that's important. I think you really need to look in the mirror and make sure you have your act together. Um, you know, a good example of that was that, you know, we were fortunate enough to work with some very large companies like General Electric and Home Depot and Lowe's. And those large companies, you know, they're obviously looking for suppliers that provide world-class quality um, as well as incredibly competitive pricing. It was interesting that um, our product conveyed natural gas and propane gas. And so our allowable defect rate was zero. We, you know, people's lives depended upon us having our products working, you know, perfectly all the time. And so we took that knowledge, not only in terms of the quality of our manufacturing product and the processes associated with that, but to everything we did. And that include when we took the order, when we shipped the order, when we build the order. You think about how many companies can do all the things right and then they don't ship the product correctly. And you as a you know, consumer, when you buy a product and someone ships you the wrong thing, it's frustrating. And so when you're doing 
um, you're looking at your business, it's important to really take a look at all your steps, all your processes, engage your people um, and the people on the front line that are doing the work, and they have some of the best ideas in terms of how to improve it. I find it amazing that, you know, if you ask someone um, who's working, again, it could be someone in your billing department, it could be someone on assembly line, it could be someone working at a front desk in a retail environment, and you ask them, so what makes you frustrated during the day? What are the things that keep you from taking care of our customers in the most effective, efficient way? And if you do that, they will come back with some wonderful ideas and wonderful suggestions. So this idea of really getting your act together, and I think I outlined a little bit in the book, it means having a clear strategy. You know, a strategy is really a framework for making decisions around allocating resources. And so it's really important to understand who your business is, um, where you're going to allocate your resources um, in terms of to grow your business. So strategy is absolutely critical. And, you know, really building your base here, really building um, that customer base so the value proposition that you bring to your customers is well-defined. And if you can start to really build that strength, um, as we were able to in the U.S. market, and then you start to use that as a springboard into some of the international markets. And as you've pointed out, great people are the keys. That's the bottom line. You need to really have an effective of way to find those great people to build this team. You're, you're right on. And we were very, very blessed that as we, and I think it's one of the challenges that companies undergo, is as you go from a small company to a midsize and then a large company, the processes that are required um, change. And so the things that worked when you had you know, maybe 30 to 40 employees no longer work when you have three or 400 employees. And so we were very fortunate enough to uh, work with a gentleman who became and really led our HR process, a gentleman named Mike Couch, and he introduced us to some work that was done by a company called Lominger, which is now part of Corn Ferry. And they have a whole series of uh, tools that are used to help build an integrated HR program. One of the key things that jumped out at me was something called success factors. And these were things that were important in terms of being successful in a job, not just achieving certain goals and objectives, but as an example, if interpersonal communications was an important component of doing the job, if um, how you dealt with customers, innovation. And so through a series of approximately 80 different success factors, you could define the three to five that might be critical for any particular job. And then what you did was you integrated that into the job definition, the recruiting process, the hiring process, and then the personnel evaluation. And so it became a critical part of what we did, so we had a holistic process for managing people. But at the end of the day, your HR team and your entire team is really the success of a company is absolutely tied to the quality of people. You can't have this traditional mindset of an HR department. They are really the key catalyst to the success of a business, and, and it's really critical for business owners and managers to get really totally integrated into the process of bringing, not only bringing great people to your business, but making sure that you nurture and develop them and help them work together to really develop these high-performing teams. We have just two minutes left, Evan. Uh, what would you say makes your book different from all those other books that are written about improving business? Well, I think a couple things, Steve. Number one is that it's not a, a personal story. It's not meant to be a biography. It's really meant to be a book with each chapter as a standalone. So if you're interested, as an example, in selling your business, Chapter 10 really walks through not only the process of doing the business, but you know, what, how was the approach I took? What was the process? How did I learn? What were some of the resources? So I think it becomes a really valuable tool in understanding the thought process as well as some of the resources. And I think that some of these uh, tools throughout the book really become an invaluable source of knowledge. And I think it's these business processes and tools that we use that really become a key element that would enable people to grow their business. Um, given the challenge that's really facing companies today, this concept of smart management lessons, which is really the platform I've built and want to continue to grow 
through hopefully future books and blogs and my website that the smart management lessons will enable people to really grow their business. And I plan to work with other CEOs and executives to draw their ideas and their knowledge and their experience and hopefully convey that to people that are interested. The title of the book, From Local to Global, Smart Management Lessons to Grow Your Company, and the author is Evan J. Siegel. Evan, tell us how to get your book. Um, it's available online through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and AuthorHouse.com, and you can go to your local bookseller and make a special order for you, and hopefully we'll work with the booksellers to bring it into the store soon. Thank you, Evan, for being with us on Author Talk. Thank you, Steve. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Whether you're four and a half or 100, you can retrain your brain. Learning RX, the radio show, is on Toginet.com, Thursday mornings at 8 a.m. Central Time with Martin Kruger. Learning RX programs are quick, they're efficient, they're life changing, and they're permanent. Unlike tutoring, cognitive skills training or brain training targets the root issue causing learning struggles. Time and money spent on chronic tutoring is a clear signal of cognitive skill deficiency. That's where Learning RX comes in. Call today, 903 617 6899. 903 617 6899. Then join us for the show here every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. And take advantage of the power it holds to improve your life. There are so many brain training issues that Learning RX can help you with. It's not a product, it's an experience. So join us for Learning RX, the radio show with Martin Kruger. Thursday mornings at 8 a.m. Central on Toginet.com. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Be here for Living Inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Trisha will dig deep in the topics that matter most to women, inspiring women to make a change in their own lives and to make a difference in the world, and maybe even deep within their own hearts. Trisha is a wife, mom, speaker, family expert, and author of 24 books. For more information on Trisha and Living Inspired, go to her website, trishagoyer.com. That's T-R-I-C-I-A-G-O-Y-E-R.com. Trisha's vision is to be the voice of hope and possibility for women of all ages. Her intention is to serve ordinary women by encouraging extraordinary things with God's help. Trisha expresses real life, real hope for real women. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Living Inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Being Lucky Can Be the Death of You. And the author is Bill Taylor. And Bill joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Bill. Good morning. How are you? Well, I'm just very curious how you created William Murdoch, this uh, character in this action-packed novel. We're going to get into that, but give us kind of an overview of the story. Uh, what's the plot here? Well, uh, Murdoch started off as uh, William Davis as a youngster and uh, went through life. Uh, tells a little bit about uh, his upbringing and what he's been through in his younger years and what he did leading up to... Uh, his uh, transformation into uh, William Murdoch. And this all happened at uh, a point in life where he decided it was a friend to get away from all and ended up in the island of Jamaica, where he accidentally killed an elderly gentleman and um, had to escape the island with no passport and eventually ended up in a Cuban uh, prison camp. And uh, from there, uh, he was uh, met his mentor, and was taken to a uh, a cattle ranch in Colombia, where uh, he changed the thing to Murdoch at that point. And the story evolves uh, from there, uh, leading into uh, modern day cattle rustling, uh, different types of of mercenary uh, action, and uh, when uh, a dictator in Colombia tries to take over the states, including uh, this ranch, uh, it starts into a, a full blazing civil war and that's basically the the plot of it i, I try to stay away from 
the normal trend of things today with CIA and retired cops and the, the norm and try to stay uh, focused on something different. I, uh, there's not many modern cattle rustling going on today, but we tried. <laughs> so how did you create this storyline? Uh, was there a motivation here, uh, an interest that uh, caught your attention? Yeah, well, many, many years ago, and I started in Jamaica, and we, uh, we missed a ride out to the hedonism. And uh, we, were, uh, we went out into the countryside in a broken-down old van, which this uh, Cuban uh, uh, Jamaican gentleman uh, offered $10 apiece for the ride out, and there were five of us. And we pulled off the road into what he said was a... Um, a uh, uh, old-time, uh, what we call now Walgreens. Well, we got into this clearing. At that time, in reality, I, I put up a danger sign because here we are in the middle of nowhere with a group of uh, sinister characters. And this, this kind of brought the, uh, the story to life, uh, a what-if situation. It all worked out where we bought what we had to buy and went on our way, but uh, it turned out, and I've always thought about it, what if that wasn't the case? And this is what the whole thing uh, revolved around, was this one incident, and this happened 30-plus years ago, and it never left my mind. So this is basically where I started. So the time frame of this story, it's a 30-year period that starts in the mid-40s, ends in the mid-70s. I noticed at the beginning you get right into, uh, uh, well, it's let's see, his name is, Davis, Bill Davis, uh, at the beginning, and he's a young boy, and and he's quite a sharpshooter. Yes, uh, well, it, it, it didn't turn out. What had happened was that uh, pretty much the first couple chapters are uh, an autobiography, for the most part, all the way up until Jamaica, where most of it is factual, and uh, the the boy grew up tough. He got out of of. Uh, the hometown he was living in, and went out on his own, ended up in Wyoming on a sheep ranch. He was a shepherd. I killed a bear at the age of 14. And uh, it kind of lives his life through the Navy, which he was a diver, a salvage diver at the time. And uh, his exposés in the the Navy, uh, mostly in the Mediterranean. And uh, it all worked out from there, and then kind of worked itself into full fiction or wishful thinking, however you want to say it. Well, tell us about his friend Arnie. Well, Arnie, uh, he didn't have much to do with the first part of it, but he was in the first part, and unfortunately in the situation where we were talking about going into this, uh, and off the road into this uh, this shack, subbing as a Walgreens, uh, got himself killed right off the bat. We all tried to escape, and inadvertently uh, that all, all were killed, which included uh, Artie, one other gentleman, and the two ladies that were with us for the ride out to this resort. And, and the only reason I got away is that they were spending too much time with the others, and I, I managed to get myself out into the, the woods and make a run for it, and discover later that uh, the other five had been killed and, uh, and thrown down this... Uh, abandoned uh, quarry mine and uh, this is how I turned up missing because when they finally found the bodies they had a lot of lime in this quarry and the bodies were so decayed uh, they couldn't really identify anybody so legally Mur- uh, Davis was dead and that's when Murdoch uh, took his his, uh, his place and he is uh, arrested as a spy and sentenced to 10 years in a Cuban work farm when he is uh picked up uh, sailing the islands, uh, trying to obviously escape. But he meets this Joseph Cruz. Now, who is Joseph? Tell us about him. Well, uh, Joseph Cruz uh, was put into the same uh, prison as uh, Murdoch. And actually, uh, um, Joseph Cruz is a very wealthy cattle baron and dealt in uh, gun running as well. And what, uh, at the time, uh, Castro was more or less teaching Cruz a lesson and uh, trying to show uh, Cruz that uh, it was his island and he could do as he wanted and, and threw Cruz into this prison just as a lesson, uh, not to keep him there, but just showing him that he could. And uh, 
they were both uh, in the same uh, uh, cell or hut, if you wish, uh, and uh, Murdoch or Davis at the time defended Cruz in an uh, altercation that happened in the yard. And Cruz took a liking to him and befriended him, and when Cruz uh, was released, he worked out uh, to the point that uh, Davis slash uh, Murdoch could uh, go along with him, if he wished, to, uh, to his ranch in Columbia. And this is how it all started. And so that's where uh, the story really develops, I guess, uh, in Colombia. Yes, mm-hmm. that's that's when most of the action starts to take place. Uh, they're fighting a mercenary. They're, they form themselves a military uh, guard to defend their ranch and their basically way of life because. What's happening is this general who is a wannabe dictator and, and, and president of, of Colombia is trying to make a land grab, take Cruz along with everybody else's ranch away from them and, and start a dictatorship, and, and Cruz and Murdoch fight him. And it turns out there's a, there's a lot of action, a lot of special effects. If, if God discovers to uh, make this into a movie, there's a... They're helicopters and uh, and fighting, and their uh, Cruz Cruz is ultimately shot and paralyzed. Uh, Murdoch uh, almost loses an arm, so there's there's a lot going on. And you seem to have some very strong uh, messages and themes in the book, uh, much about being true to your word, loyalty. Uh, why is that important to you? Well, a man is as only as good as his word. There's no doubt about that. But the way Cruz grew up, very poor, he started the ranch through uh, getting a hundred uh, head of cattle, selling those at a profit, and getting a hundred more, and working himself up by his bootstraps. And what, when the fortune started to to come to him, he in turn uh, uh, gave a lot to the community himself by by building a, a town around his compound for the workers and, and inviting people uh, and, and, and just sharing in his wealth. And, uh, and loyalty and respect, if you don't uh, give respect, you won't get respect. And I, I believe in that strongly. So we need to share our, our fortune, as you put it. Uh, we need to never let a friend down. Because that's, that's so true. important. Loyalty. Very so true. Right. Whether it be your spouse or a true friend you haven't seen in 20 years, it's important. Friend is a friend forever. And so that's a, that's a very strong theme in the book. Yes. Now, you pick Columbia. Are you familiar with Columbia? <laughs> no. It, it, <laughs> it, it, it sits at the time the unrest of the country. Right. The civil uh, unrest, the, yeah. The, um, the uh, terrain, it has mountains, it has flatlands. It's, although it's not a cattle-producing country, it's more uh, of an agricultural, but uh, it did have the land uh, capable of handling something of this magnitude, and it, it just worked right through uh, the, what was happening at the time frame of, of, of what's in the book uh, uh, originally. Now, we also have this rogue general. Is he an important part of it? Uh, in, in that portion, uh, well, there's, there, there are two generals, one of which is the one who wants to be dictator. The second was the general who was actually in charge of the army. And when uh, the dictator started to take control, he, in turn, uh, offered uh, Cruz his support. And in turn, he um, he uh, eventually became president himself, and sided with Cruz and his uh, his um, uh, mercenary army to to fight this this uh, dictator general, and to uh, to to uh, himself and a large officer corps from the Colombian army at that time defected from the army and joined uh, Cruz in his uh, campaign. So it has a lot of twists and turns. It does. I, w- I was trying my very, very best not to let a, a page lull. I, I try to keep the, uh, the, the uh, book moving along uh, 
not give a lot of uh, dialogue or, or useless chatter going nowhere just to describe a, 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 a color or a, a, a thing or, or two pages just across the street. I, uh, I try to uh, put action into uh, every chapter and uh, try to lead people in and uh, have them not wanting to put the book down. And as you explained, this is not a stereotype of books that contains uh, any kind of CIA hitman or special ops. It's really unique. Well, the, the only time anybody like that gets involved is when he is approached, um, Cruz is approached by uh, a member of the U.S. government wanting to uh, use a portion of his ranch in Colombia as a training ground for uh, an insurgent army. And uh, they didn't go along with him. And he seems to become uh, a pain in the ass for the whole book. He keeps on showing up, causing problems for him. And the, the sequel uh, of the book uh, eventually shows that they've they, they gotten rid of him once and for all. But through the entire book, from when they had met him, uh, he just kept on, he wasn't the, uh, a CIA operative or anything. He was just on his own to, to kind of... Um, uh, actually built his own army. And uh, so it, um, it it all worked out. I try not to get too involved with uh, any government or things of this sort. Well, you're not a traditional writer, but you uh, have this great story. So it's the kind of thing that uh, you just love doing. Well, it's, I don't. I don't know what they call a traditional writer. I've never been to a course. I've never been to language. Is not not one of my strong points. Of neither spelling, and uh, I, I I I just uh, try to write the book as a, an ordinary person who would speak uh, and act. A lot of the uh, the the scenes in the book are, are factual. I deal a lot with different types of weapons and explain what they are and. Some of them, if a woman's reading, may get uh, a little bit confused uh, about uh, different types of armament and things, but uh, it's it's a great guy's book. Uh, anybody who's ever been in the military would understand the language very well. The title of the book, Being Lucky Can Be the Death of You, and the author is Correct. Bill Taylor. Bill, tell us how to get your book. Oh, it's on Amazon. Uh, you can go into uh, the, uh, the title or my name, and it'll pop up. Uh, Amazon selling them as well as Author House. Uh, it can be purchased either or, and also at your local bookstore, just by ordering it. It's it's on the uh, on the shelves. They they can you can order them, or uh, some uh, have already gotten in stock. Bill, thanks for being with us on Author Talk. That's, that's great for having me. Thanks so much. <laughs> 